It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is episode 13 in our series, Spiritual Lessons from World War I. For those of you that have missed uh, the first 12, uh, I have to admit it would probably be a little strange just sort of stepping into this message. I always d- like to design the messages as sort of standalones, but there is a, a building process uh, because World War I isn't a very familiar uh, piece of history for most people, and I'm not sure why uh, that is because it is so defining for the world in which we live and yet it, I think it just got trumped by World War II somehow. And that isn't to say that everyone knows about World War II, but I think we know more about World War II. And, uh, but the setup and the behavior of the nations together, which is going to interlock, sort of lock horns in the ultimate battle uh, called the Great War, the war to end all wars, that's literally the perspective everyone had, is so interesting. Uh, to look into, and yet it's not just looking into one nation and the leaders of one nation and the politics of one nation. It is the coalescing of nations. And so as we've been going through this, we've sort of hopped around a little. Uh, we've, we've spent a little time in Great Britain, a little time in Germany, a little time in France, a little time in Belgium, a little time in Russia. And we're sort of beginning to put these pieces together. Technically, we had a little time in Sarajevo when a gun went off and the Archduke Franz Ferdinand got shot, which, of course, is going to be a trigger point for this whole thing. Uh, Today, we're going to go in a very unusual direction. In fact, I would say if we were going to sort of have a vote of what are some other nations that maybe uh, were in this war, you know, you could use your mind and sort of, you know, try and picture the European landscape and say, ah, let's see. And you might say Turkey. Yes, you're right, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. You could even go as far as Japan, right? And you'd be right. Japan was in World War I. However, most people are not going to guess this nation. And yet this one is going to play a very, very interesting role. And I feel like compelled to set this stage or this puzzle piece in place uh, in advance because it is going to play a big, big role when we get to 1917. And so we're 1914 right now, and it is playing a big role, but in a different way. And so uh, let me just sort of move forward and you'll figure out what country I'm talking about. This one's part 13, the meddling of William. You guys ever heard of uh, William, right? Now, his name is... Uh, Wilhelm uh, II, Kaiser Wilhelm, but we've been calling him William just because it comes you know, off the tongue a little more smoothly. And uh, someone in one of the podcasts, a feedback podcast, was thinking that it's going to go from uh, William, no, Wilhelm to William to William to uh, Billy, I think was uh, his suggestion. So we haven't gotten that far yet. But he is going to be an interesting player in the story today. We're going to give a little more background on William. We're we're sort of putting this picture together, this this portrait together of this emperor or this Kaiser, Caesar, Czar, you know, the, the word used basically king of the Germans. And this is in the times of monarchies and kings that we're entering into, that we're sort of ending. World War I is going to end most of that. 
And for instance, the, the Kaiser, by the end of World War I, is going to be deposed. He's going to abdicate uh, his throne. And so all of this grandeur and this kingly uh, regal romance is going to uh, cease. Part 13, the meddling of William. Mexico. Now, who would have ever guessed Mexico would have something to do with World War I? But the reason it does have something to do with World War I is because the Germans don't want America to have anything to do with World War I. And so when I say the meddling of William, I mean the meddling of William. This guy is something else. I mean, he's a work of art, uh, really, but it's sort of like one of those kid art, you know, that you stick on the refrigerator. He's just sort of an unstable character that doesn't see his instability. He just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why what he says offends people. He can't figure out why that when he mocks an, a ruler of another nation, that other nation doesn't like him. He just can't figure it out. You know, he calls this ruler fat, this one a dwarf, and everyone gets mad at him. You know, so Bulgaria is mad and the French are mad at him. It's like, what did I say? And he doesn't quite get it that he speaks too freely, he lacks discretion, and he says all of his plans. He like literally just, he'll, the, the times will come over from the United States and he'll spill all the beans of what he's planning on doing. And there, there was this one interview uh, with the New York Times uh, before World War I, and uh, this is in the days of Theodore Roosevelt, because the Kaiser's been around a long time. He's not a president. He doesn't just serve for four years and they have to get reelected. He's a king. You know, so he's been around, I think, since like 1885, right? And so now we're in you know, 1914 at the start of World War I. This guy's been around the block, and so he's just sort of settled in. Meanwhile, all these other politicians sort of rise to power and have to deal with him. And so Theodore Roosevelt and Kaiser Wilhelm, if you could just imagine their relationship, that, that's a humorous study in and of itself, which is a little distracting from World War One. Uh, but uh, the Times is going to come back, and they're literally going to submit the interview that they just had with uh, William to the president to say, should we publish this? Have you ever heard of a, a, a magazine or a newspaper doing that? And that's how sensitive the information was. It's like, this could create international instability. And I think, I don't remember the famous quote from uh, Theodore Roosevelt was like, in the strongest terms, I encourage you not to. <laughs> and so, I mean, the guy is just, he says things way too freely, right? And he is a meddler. So Mexico, an unexpected country to blend into the tapestry of World War I. So, you know, a picture of the United States in 1914. It's interesting to see the dominion of Canada uh, up, up at the top, right? You have uh, Mexico down on the bottom, and then you see the Baja Peninsula, which is just below California, just below San Diego, and I'm gonna put a star right there on the map, which is right near the tip. If you're hearing this via the podcast, at the very bottom of the Baja Peninsula, Magdalena Bay, Mexico. And so we have this unique tension that is going to be created here. This is an ideal naval port. It is. It's just like this great bay uh, structure uh, for a, a naval uh, uh, operation. And someone is going to have their eyes on it. His name is William II. And he is going to personally, under the cover of a private purchase, want to purchase Magdalena Bay. It's up for sale. And when it's found out that he is trying to buy it, things go south uh, a little. Uh, however, you're going to see a posturing from Germany 
where they are way in advance. They know that they have der Tag. They have the day. That's, that's in their future. And so as a good German would, they're going to plan. And one of their biggest issues is they do not want America in this war. When the Europeans go to war, they do not want the United States getting involved. And so there's a long conspiracy that is being worked on, a, a long plan to actually distract the Americans. Now, if I stop right there, I just want you to know that there is something very true about what I just said, but not just in the landscape of World War I, but of your life. You see, there is something that the enemy wants to distract you from. It's a bigger picture purpose for your life. And if the devil can get you swamped and distracted in smaller skirmishes, he's won. And so he wants to distract you with, in this case, a Mexico. So introducing the meddler, William II. So if you haven't seen a picture of William II, there's, uh, with his famous mustache, can't you just sort of see his personality even just coming out of that picture too? Uh, he's trying to act tough, okay? That, that would probably be one of the best ways of saying it, is he wants everyone to think that he's really fierce and that he would go to war at a drop of a hat. But he technically doesn't want to. He just wants you to think that he does. It's sort of the way that I was in my high school days where you, know, you want people to think that you would beat them up if need be. I know, this is going to sound strange. It's like, I don't know that Eric have ever wanted that. However, when I was in public school, you sort of want to ha give off the vibe that you know, you're, you're a tough guy, and if you mess with me, you're going to end up you know, being roughed up. Of course, Eric would never hit anyone, right? But I still want people to think I might. See, there's a little William II in Eric Ludi, and so when I study him, I'm like a little chagrined over. It's like, ah. Because all of us can have this same propensity. So Barbara Tuckman uh, says this, and actually, throughout this entire book, uh, entire message, this is going to be, I'm going to be quoting from the Zimmerman telegram, not from the Guns of August, but I forgot to switch out the, uh, the graphics. So she has another book called the Zimmerman telegram. So Barbara Tuckman says this, it was his task, speaking of William, he believed to preserve the balance of Europe. Indeed, but who but he in Europe was equal to it? He had a very, very high opinion of his international uh, intelligence and his foreign uh, perspectives on things. Europe needed a mastermind, continues Barbara Tuckman, if it was not to fall apart under the fumbling of these petty bureaucrats. Dynastic rulers were the only persons fit to manage international affairs. But really, it was not fair the whole burden should fall upon him. Immediately, the Kaiser, a man of volatile moods, felt deeply sorry for himself. Alone, he shouldered this terrible burden, and no one realized how it weighed upon him. He must bravely carry on, misunderstood, unappreciated, though his efforts were. In other words, he feels self-pity a lot. He goes, he has massive mood swings. One day he's as happy as anything, and the next day he's down in the dumps. But he's very vulnerable to self-pity because everyone seems to misunderstand him. And the good things he's trying to do to save the world, really trying to uh, make Germany the most powerful nation on earth, but in his mind he's saving the world because he convinces himself that when he's finagling in another person's affairs or another nation's affairs that he's doing it for their benefit. 
Like he got his cousin Nikki, remember Nicholas II, the Tsar of Russia, into a battle uh, with the Japanese, uh, which is uh, the ja Japanese-Russian war. And in 1905, guess who's going to be defeated? The Russians are going to be publicly humiliated. And guess who's behind the scenes poking Nikki to go defend his borders and to go put the Japanese in their place? And it's going to destroy. It's going to be the first breakdown of the Russian Empire. And who's behind it? Yeah, William. Okay, William is always behind these things, and he feels misunderstood that he has to carry all these weights. He has to deal with Russia. He has to deal with encirclement. He has to deal with France. He has to, he's always giving counsel to every nation. You know, he's always meeting with their leaders and telling them exactly how they should rule their nation. And it's always a little German slanted. In other words, it always seems to come out in Germany's favor. And every one of the rulers knows that when they're talking with them. Sort of like, you actually think I'm going to do that. And the only one that ever takes this advice was his cousin, Nicky, Nicholas II. And I don't know that Nicholas is going to be taking his advice anymore. I think he's blown it worldwide now. The yellow peril, the dire warning from William. So William... Again, he prides himself as sort of being this mastermind of, you know, foreign intelligence. And after the Russian-Japanese war, uh, he is going to begin to realize the Japanese are a lot tougher than anyone thought. And so he's going to sort of coin the phrase, yellow peril. Now, I, I don't want to try and defend William at all. Almost everything this guy said sounds very racist in our years today. I mean, the way he speaks of the Slavs, the way he speaks of Asians is not healthy. Okay, I'll just say that up front. I'm not giving any quotes about it, but even the term yellow peril, I'm sure, could be somewhat uh, offensive, you know, around the edges, and it, it probably should be. <laughs> There's nothing really that healthy about this entire perspective, but his concern was that the yellow peril, which was the strength of the Japanese, was going to overtake all of Europe. And so he had a painting drawn up of Buddha uh, riding a dragon, and there were seven uh, countries, you know, sort of depicted as women that are, you know, trying to stave it off. And then he, he created this uh, a lithograph of it and sent it to all the leaders of Europe so that they could stand with Germany against the Yellow Peril. Of course, in the picture, Germany is the hero, you know, with the sword drawn. The others are sort of looking to Germany like, what should we do? Uh, and, of course, that's a great picture of the way William sees himself, too. But he is going to coin this phrase, the yellow peril, and in a strange way, he is going to create the yellow peril. It's really interesting how this works, because what is going to start out as just sort of his imagination is going to then turn into a very real thing. And the Japanese are going to become a peril, as you begin to recognize and sweep into World War II, this is a very real thing. But what starts as yellow peril is ultimately going to come to William as something that he respects. He really likes the Japanese. In fact, he ends up siding with the Japanese. And if you think about that, what he starts out as like trying to create this phobia of is actually going to be something he allies with in the future. So Barbara Tuckman says this, Seized by the brilliance of his conception, the Kaiser caused copies to be engraved and presented to all the embassies in Berlin and to royal relatives of the various reigning houses and other distinguished persons. So this painting is going to go all over the place. 
William's forays into personal diplomacy often dismayed the European chanceries, in, in some of which he was known as William the Sudden, because he swung wildly between feelings of persecution and a rosy optimism. No one ever knew what to expect of the German emperor. War games with William. Just make sure the Kaiser always wins. So the term war games, uh, what, what a nation will do in its military, it will practice maneuvers or even like on a, a big board, it'll move and it'll create scenarios and see who wins. And when the Kaiser would play war games, he always had to win. So whatever side the Kaiser was on, he won. And so obviously that doesn't train your military very well for how to be realistic in battle when the Kaiser always wins, because in real life, the Kaiser doesn't always win, which is gonna be somewhat of a shocker to him in World War I when he starts losing things. It's like, how could I lose? I'm the Kaiser. I mean, he always wins in the war games. And again, this is an unhealthy perspective. I'm not trying to defend William. I'm just trying to explain him. Barbara Tuckman says, Bismarck, remember Otto von Bismarck? Uh, he's the guy that was the real politique. Bismarck said of him, said of William, he wanted it always to be Sunday. And I guess Sunday to William was a very happy day, right? So he wanted it always to be Sunday. William's Byzantine court assisted him in this illusion by providing him with his own morning paper in a special imperial edition of one made up of carefully excerpted items from the world press printed in gold. So this is how they made it always Sunday for him. Even his newspaper was gold ink. Uh, yeah, that's, that's William. The Secret Treaty of 1911. We could also call this Kaisergate. I made that term up. But this is like governmental scandal at a very high level, okay, that is going to manipulate nations. And guess who's behind it? <laughs> William II is behind it. And so this is where we start getting some of the cloak and dagger uh, spy network stuff, which is, is actually a really fun aspect of World War I and World War II. But we get a little of it. We'll dip our toe into it in this message. So there's a few contributing factors to this uh, Kaiser Gate, as I'm calling it. One is the building of the Panama Canal. So the Panama Canal is going to start being constructed uh, in 1904. It is going to finish being constructed August 15th of 1914. Isn't that interesting? It's like literally we just started World War I. August 4th of 1914 is when the, uh, Germany is going to invade Belgium. So August uh, what, 15th of 1914, it's going to be concluded. This is a major accomplishment. That is, I mean, nations have been trying to figure out a way to cross through uh, South America without having to go around the horn for a long time. And now suddenly it's been accomplished. And so, but this is going to become a player in this because that is a political issue too of, of strength of, of military uh, potential. Then we have the yellow peril, which I already explained to you mixed with the mysterious 10,000 Japanese, which I'll explain in just a second. And then I'm going to say Texas. Mexico, just like France, has an Alsace. Now, we don't oftentimes think of that as uh, if you're from North America, you just sort of look at Mexico, because in my lifetime, Mexico has always been a somewhat weak country. They haven't been a dangerous threat to us. If Mexico said that they were going to attack America, most Americans would chuckle. They're like, you're going to attack us? That isn't even possible. Okay, now, uh, back in this time period, early 1900s, it was a very volatile situation. And whereas I wouldn't say that America was 
threatened and they felt like they were going to be overtaken by the, the Mexican government. I think what they were concerned of is that the Mexicans had an ally known as the Japanese. And this is where the Kaiser, William, is going to stick his finger into it. He wants to create that tension. Why? Why would he want to create a tension? Why would he want to stir things up? Because he wants America to be busy at home. He wants America to be tied up in their own skirmishes, defending their own borders, so that when he attacks through Belgium and hits France, he doesn't have to deal with them, being the moral good guy on the scene. So Mexico has an all-sace which is a weird thing, but when they lost Texas, they still look at Texas as theirs. Like, that doesn't belong to the United States, and so this is going to create some huge skirmishes right at this time. And the mysterious 10,000 Japanese, maybe I should explain that. The Kaiser has a source, and this source is going to see 10,000 Japanese secretly working, and they were soldiers, okay, but they're, you know, they're in disguise, right at the Panama Canal, and they're ready to overtake it and seize it. Okay, so this is back in 1911. And so the Kaiser is like sticking his finger in all of this, and then he's going to begin to stir the pot more with all sorts of different uh, ideas. But he's always thinking about this. That's why he even wanted to buy the bay, Magdalena Bay. It's like, hey, I could, uh, I could do a lot right there. I mean, this, is, uh, th this would be a great location. Because then he could bring his military, his naval ships, right there and just sort of control the situation. So Barbara Tuckman says this, William's vigorous imagination envisaged the United States and Japan locked in conflict on a battlefield in Mexico. He saw the most fortunate results for Germany. So what he wants is he wants... Japan, now why would he want Japan? Because Japan has just signed a, a treaty with Great Britain. And that's, you know, the, Great Britain has betrayed uh, the white race, is what Kaiser Wilhelm looks at it as. Because they have sided with the yellow peril. And so he wants to distract the yellow peril over to Mexico. And so what he wants to do is stir up some kind of tension between the United States and Japan and then see if he can hint towards a, a treaty between Mexico and Japan where then Japan can leverage Mexico to attack on the border to totally distract the United States. You have to admit, it's a pretty good idea if you're into those sorts of things. And the Kaiser is. Obviously, he didn't have something better to do with his time than to dream up portraits and how he can have them painted and how he could distract all the other nations so that his nation could thrive. The moment the United States invaded Mexico, says Barbara Tuckman, the smoldering anti-Yankeeism south of the border would burst into flames throughout Latin America. Yankee domination of the continent would end. Germany, ambitious to expand her commerce and influence, would at last have the free field she deserved and had long sought. So this is all in William's mind. Properly exploited, the Japanese menace would surely provoke the Americans to invade Mexico. Another pleasing consequence occurred to the Kaiser. In a war between the United States and Japan, England would have to support America, and that would cost her her Japanese ally. So remember, Great Britain and Japan are now allies, but if Mexico 
and Japan formed a, a, a union and came against the United States, and then what would Great Britain do? They would have to side with America in his mind, right? Which would then split Japan from Great Britain. So I don't know how many of you sit around and think about stuff like this, but this is the most bizarre thing, that this guy is going to go to these links to do these things, to mess with our business over here. I mean, we're just trying to, we're a new upstart nation. We're trying to get our feet under us. We don't need a meddler from across the, 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 the Atlantic Ocean. The Kaiser's worrying mind, endlessly scheming, had now found a new candidate to defend the white race against the yellow, America. And Mexico would be the battleground. How simple, how natural. One had to convince the heedless Americans of their mission. <laughs> that was what he then set off to do. And he's, he had an entire strategy of how to approach Theodore Roosevelt with this, to get Theodore Roosevelt all stirred up about these 10,000 Japanese. I mean, the whole thing that he had sort of whipped up. And Theodore Roosevelt didn't buy it. I don't think Theodore Roosevelt had a very high opinion of William II. I'm just going to say it that way. In other words, I know what you're trying to do. And he didn't buy it. That didn't stop William. Okay, William then in the next administration, because Theodore Roosevelt was eight years, and that's really where the Panama Canal is going to come from, is Theodore Roosevelt. And then uh, William Howard Taft, uh, just, he, he served four years right up until basically World War I, because William, uh, Woodrow Wilson is going to be the president during World War I. But Howard Taft now inherited William II, and he has to deal with all of William's schemes. This is what Barbara Tuckman says. If America did, did not or would not understand these portents, a secret treaty between Japan and Mexico, Berlin determined to bring them forcibly to her notice. In February of 1911, a German spy named Horst von der Goltz arrived in Paris under orders to steal the draft of a secret treaty. So now we have our secret treaty, which I'm calling Kaisergate, because all these other things haven't worked so far, and you know, William is working hard. Now, there are tensions between Mexico and the United States because of all this. I mean, Germany is literally stirring the waters constantly, and it's, he, Germany comes in and pokes Mexico in the eye, and then, then Mexico is like, whoa, who did that? And then uh, Kaiser uh, William points at the United States and says, I can't believe they just did that to you. And then Kaiser pokes America in the eye, and then America's like, hey, who did that? And he's like, I can't believe Mexico did that to you. This is literally what he's doing. Okay, he's trying to create animosity. By the way, as I go through this, I want you to recognize I am describing the Christian life to a T. The enemy tries to create the same dynamic in our souls. So there's this thing, it's called the secret treaty, that Kaiser Wilhelm, William II, is privy to. And he knows that there's a secret treaty between Japan and Mexico. Okay, now, I'm not even going to say there wasn't, okay? I don't want to go that far. However, there's a lot of sketchy details to this with the Kaiser's fingerprints all over it. And so what he's going to do is he's going to start spreading this disinformation around about a secret treaty between Mexico and Japan to attack America that they are going to work together. They're going to use their shorelines of Mexico as naval bases for the Japanese to sort of set up shop to attack. They're going to use their transcontinental railway system to get the Japanese across to hit at the Gulf of Mexico and on the shoreline of California. You can imagine how that made the Americans feel. Okay, this is going to create an anti-Japanese sentiment which is going to actually then sponsor 
a real conflict between America and Japan for the next decades. Okay, so, I mean, it's very real. California's going to pass laws that no Japanese can buy agricultural land, that they can do this or that. And the Japanese back home are going to be offended that the Americans are so racist against them. And yet, what started all this? In other words, what we have is a meddler in the mix that is actually creating these imaginary situations. I know if I call it imaginary, there's probably substance always there, right? There, there's things happening, but who created that substance? And so what we have is this story. It's a great story, by the way. In February of 1911, a German spy named Horst von der Goltz, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing his name right, but even saying it wrong is sort of fun, arrived in Paris under orders to steal the draft of a secret treaty. So the Germans are going to take it upon themselves to discover this secret treaty and to make it known. Okay? It just happens to be the Germans that are going to find it, right? Vondergoltz, according to an embellished confession he later made, attached himself to Limentour, who's the Mexican finance minister, so they're in Paris right now, and with the, aids of a, with the aid of a Rolls-Royce, several Apaches from the Paris underworld, a wild party and a drugged bottle, succeeded in rendering the Mexican minister unconscious and extracting from him the vital document in the most approved cloak and dagger manner. Immediately, two silent black-coated couriers from Berlin appeared. Berlin is the capital of Germany, if you haven't put that together yet. Appeared and relieved him of his loot, and in a few weeks, a photographed copy of the secret treaty was laid under the startled eyes of the American ambassador to Mexico, Henry Lane Wilson. Now we have evidence, a smoking gun, right, that came straight from the Germans. The Germans have a photographed copy. Of course, uh, I think it's Henry Lane Wilson said, this never happened. I don't even know what you're talking about. However, the story still lives, and the American public is going to be very impacted by this. You see, whether or not something is true or not really doesn't have anything to do with it. It has to do with what people believe is true. And, of course, what I just described was the way the media works today. In other words, it's the same exact principle. You say it's true, you say it's true, you say it's true. It's disproven, but people still believe it's true. And so the same is, this is the same premise that Germany is functioning on. Persuade, 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 give enough evidence to make everyone think, and even though when they examine the evidence, they're going to find that it's totally made up. I don't know, we could just go back a few years in American history, and we're going to see these exact storylines. But people will still believe it, and they will go to their deathbed believing it, because they saw the photograph copy with their own eyes. Yeah, but who made the copy, and what was it a copy of? Who drafted up the thing you even took a photograph of? In other words, what we have, I mean, classic conspiracy stuff right here, okay? Now, the thing for me, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy guy, okay? I don't get into that because I don't want to be distracted. There's a lot to get distracted with in this life, and I don't have the time to be distracted with what the devil's doing. I really want to be an expert in what God is doing in this earth. However, it is important for us to recognize that the devil wants to get us off our game. He wants to get us distracted from where we're supposed to be using our military force, our military strength, to get us fighting small skirmishes. Despite anguished denials by Japanese ambassadors in all the capitals and by Mexican officials, could you imagine what this felt like for J Japan and Mexico? It's just like, no, we didn't make that. We do not have a secret treaty. So listen to this. Despite anguished denials by Japanese ambassadors in all the capitals and by Mexican officials, the report persisted, reverberating with most relish and embellishments from Germany. 
The German press, in an access of wishful thinking, firmly predicted that the Americans would cross the border within three days, overthrow Diaz, the Mexican president, and annex Mexico to protect the Panama Canal. You see, they're trying to self-fulfill prophecy. This is what they want to have happen. They want this tension. They're trying to stir up a war. Why? Why would someone want to stir up a war between America and Mexico when they're way over here in Europe? It's because what Germany is up to is very strategic. It's more strategic than most of us probably think, right? In other words, this isn't the way we live. However, the Germans have their tog and they've been working on it for decades. Schlieffen has developed his plan and for that plan to work, this needs to be true, this needs to be true, this needs to be true, and this needs to be true. Now, one of the things that needed to be true was Belgium needed to acquiesce and let them through. Because if they don't, Great Britain could come in, and Great Britain can't. They must not come into World War I. But the other one was we must not engage the United States. And so how can we deal with both? Well, first of all, we had what? What was it, like a billion dollars to give to Belgium's king? And that was part of the plan to woo Belgium to be silent and to allow them through, which backfired because Albert was underestimated. But then on the other side... We need to somehow distract the United States. Now, in this picture, I would like us to be the United States. I know it feels pretty good if you're you know, from this country, like, yeah, all right, go, go U.S. However, we are very distractible. It's interesting because every nation in this, in World War I and World War II, seems to have commonalities between both wars. It is odd. Like, if you look at Germany between World War I and World War II, they think the same in World War I as they do in World War II. It's like the same people, you'd think. They are the same people, right? They have the same inclinations. Russia, classically understood as the bumbler in the very beginning, and then they grow into the colossus, right? You're going to see similarities. You're going to see Great Britain divided, full of faction, at the very time that they need unity more than any, anything else. And that's World War I and World War II. The United States, we're distracted with home front issues in both wars, both times, we are easily playable in this department, obviously. In the first one, we're distracted with Mexico. In the second one, we have the Great Depression. And we're sucking our thumb in the fetal position, and we don't have time for that because we're just trying to survive over here. That literally, when World War II is starting, we are in the Depression. To think of us actually going to war is almost laugh out loud ridiculous. We can hardly even get our own nation together, let alone try and solve European conflicts. And you have to recognize that there is a bigger purpose that we have as individuals, and so often we're falling for the same thing. We have a skirmish on our Mexican border. We have the Great Depression in our life, and as a result, we're not functional for what we're actually here for. So Barbara Tuckman says this, So fast flew the rumors that President Taft felt obliged to deny publicly that the mobilization was concerned in any way with Japan. He had moved his uh, soldiers to, I don't know, it was El Paso, and they were doing uh, different things, but it was actually because of a Mexican conflict. It had nothing to do with Japan, but the media was all over this. Look at he's even preparing us for war, for an invasion from Japan. He was telling the truth, but nobody believed him. The less so because Germany took a certain step to make sure nobody would. So here's a pretty good summation of the whole thing. The entire thing was a German invention. Isn't that a, just an amazing thought to think that all of this crisis, 
All of this drama, all of this distraction is an invention. Of who? This is William II. This guy, I know we, we've sort of put him in the category of an imbecile, but he is a fairly smart guy. He just uses his smarts in a very weird way. In other words, he's very self-focused. He wants his newspaper in gold ink, and he wants the world to serve at his feet. He thinks everything should be built around Germany. And so all of these things that he's doing, he's doing out of a good heart. Oh, a caring heart. You know, oh, I care about you know, the, the situation of the world. No, he cares about Germany. Here's Barbara Tuckman. Germany had succeeded not only in making Americans believe in the possibility of joint Japanese-Mexican action against the United States, but in making herself believe in it. It's interesting how a lie works. Because you start with the premise that, you know, this isn't even true, but I'm going to try and convince someone of it. But after a while, you begin to believe your own lie. And now Germany begins to literally function as if there really is this animosity between J Japan and Mexico, which, even though you don't know yet, is going to play a big role, there's a reason why I put that quote up on the screen, a big role in 1917. You see, America is going to wake up from its stupor. America is actually going to get into this war, and yet, and ironically, this is all going to play into it. And the very guy who's trying to create this muddled mess and this distraction is the very one who's accidentally going to awaken America, which is part of the fun of the story, but I need to hold back a little of it because I, I can't get ahead of myself. I mean, we're in 1914 right now, and we haven't gotten very far. The strategic souring. This is what our enemy does. He's very good at it. He wants to sour us towards people and relationships. One of his greatest tactics is to try and sour us towards God. In other words, there will be a disaster or a difficulty in our life, and what is the enemy's agenda with that? Can you believe they just did that to you? This is classic enemy, okay? This is what he does. He wants to sour our perspective. In this situation, the meddler, William, is trying to sour America's perspective towards Mexico and towards Japan. He's also trying to work on Japan and Mexico to sour their perspective on America. America is against you. America is racist. America doesn't like Japanese. Well, America had no issue with Japanese, until all of this started to happen, and then because of fear and anxiety, you behave erratically as humans, which what we see is the same type of peril with like COVID-19 coming over, and people in how they behave, they were very nice people until suddenly this came into the story, and now they're very militant, and we saw that in multiple fashions, okay, all, through, all over the world. People become odd under duress, and they behave erratically, and they can be violent even, to self-preserve. And what you see is, as, as William is meddling in this situation, it's spiking, or I could say souring, those relationships. So we can call it the helpful voice. When the devil comes in, or William comes in, he always tries to sound helpful. This is the way he always attempts to approach it. I don't know if you can see through it, like when the devil tries to do this with you and he gives you counsel of how you could really solve your situation. Here's Genesis 3, and you can hear the helpful voice that is intended to sour Adam and Eve towards God. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was that statement right there? That was a creative way of trying to make God look like he's holding back. He doesn't want them to be like him. He doesn't want them to know good and evil. So he is withholding that. Don't eat from that lest you become powerful, lest you become like me. We don't want that. I want to be supreme. And so it's a false accusation cloaked in helpfulness. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now we're not talking about a small moment in history. We're talking about a major event. And the same is true. This can shift world events. When you believe that helpful voice, that uh, diplomacy that is being played, that consultant from the outside that is coming in, with that desire to see your life made easier. Oh, I just want to warn you that there are 10,000 Japanese you know, like in civilian clothes hanging out doing you know, military maneuvers preparing to attack your borders. Okay, 10,000 that are hanging out the Panama Canal, which, hey, this is American right here. We just spent 10 years trying to build this thing. We're just finishing it up. And what? We have Japanese ready to take over that? And wait a minute, William, you said that your, uh, your informant told you that he saw them? Absolutely. I've never lied to you before, have I? What you want to say is, yes, you lie every time you speak. However, he always would use that phrase, and I've never lied to you. The hand grenade strategy. So this is the way I've likened it in our life, that we have a walled city. It's called our life. It's meant to be walled. However, our walls are oftentimes broken down and we have breaches. We have gaps in our walls where the enemy is able to access us, which is why we need to become fortified. The Spirit of God, when he moves into our life, will convict us of sin. He will show us where we have vulnerabilities and then he will help us repair them. In other words, he's in the business of salvation. He's not just in the business of condemnation. He's not just trying to show us, you have a problem, fix it. He actually is saying, hey, we have a problem here in your life. Let me help you restore this. However, when you have a gap, when you have a breach, the enemy's classic technique, which is to spoil your perspective of God, is to take a grenade. This is at least my mental picture for it. And he sees your gap. So he's cunning with the gap. He doesn't just bring in a flood of, of demons into it. No, he has to be calculated because he doesn't want his devilishness to be blamed on him. He wants his devilishness to be blamed on God. So he takes the pin from the grenade, rolls it in, hides behind the corner. There's a challenge in your life, a disaster, a trauma. The first voice you hear is the William voice. Can you believe God did that to you? You see, this wasn't God. And yet your first impression in your soul can oftentimes be a lasting one, which is why we need to be very guarded because the enemy will give false news, false news, false news, false news, and then even when the truth is unearthed, that false news can still hang in the air. You have to have a renewal of your mind to recognize that wasn't God. You need to repent of your conclusion that you have to, where you've taken God's nature and brought it down to the level of the devil. God doesn't behave as the devil. It's the devil that has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That was not God. 
And yet the devil is very, very good at souring, at spoiling our perspective. The souring and the survival bait. So he works on one side with the souring of perspective. Then he's going to work on the other side with what I could call the survival bait. You better take care of you. Right now the world has fallen to pieces and you better watch out for you. You see, this is the uh, growing to the grocery store in 2020 and not finding toilet paper type of issue. Okay, human instinct in a time of crisis is to rescue themselves. This is the opposite of what Jesus does, and this is the opposite of what Jesus does in and through us. However, we need to recognize that the devil's very good at sparking this sort of behavior because it's based on anxiety, it's based on fear, it's based on a threat. And so the enemy's going to whisper, yeah, there's 10,000 down by the Panama Canal. I think they're maneuvering right now. I think they're approaching. I, I have a, a source down there that says they're approaching uh, the borderline right now. And even though the whole thing could be false, your soul is instinctively designed to protect yourself, which is why you need to be set free. You need to be set free from an initial vulnerability towards self to actually say, no, God, I take my cue from you, not from William. William will not define my actions in this life. And so for us, we need to actually transfer from that vulnerability to being a survivor. You see, William's entire goal is to keep you off balance in this situation. He wants to keep you focused on your home front. He wants to keep you focused. When you pray, when you can never move outside of your own life when you pray, even though you're praying, praise God, but you can never move outside because you're dealing with a Mexico border. And you can't seem to get out of your, your, your great depression funk to be leveraging this great strength that God has given you to change the world. God designed you as a missionary. And yet, so many of us are hampered because of this tactic of William in our life. Luke 14, then Jesus said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. So just imagine the same thing is being said to us. All right, my purpose for you is set. I would like you to come and participate in it. And yet at this exact point, William has already set things in place to hinder us from being able to say, yes, I will lend my strength to the allied cause. There is something that is distracting to us, and the same is true in this story. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. When we look at these excuses, we oftentimes laugh. Okay, you, you bought a piece of ground and you need to go and see it? I mean, this is like, a, that's a pathetic. But every one of our excuses is because they're all fabricated to start with. This isn't what God designed us for, is to deal with a skirmish on the Mexican border. He designed this thing known as us to actually leverage a strength to impact the world. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Whoever, and then this is fast forward into verse 27. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 33. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
there seems to be this idea at the very cornerstone of coming to Christ of letting go of the cares of this world and not allowing that bait to have us. Because I think in any situation, in any circumstance, we all sort of have that Mexican border in our life where there are threats, there are vulnerabilities, like what are you going to do for food? What are you going to do for clothing? What are you going to do for a job? I mean, whatever it is, it's the cares of this life. The devil's saying, you need to tend to that, and if you don't tend to that, well then how in the world do you expect to survive? And yet Jesus is going to go the opposite direction, and he's going to say, yeah, the heathen seek after all these things. But I tell you, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things are going to be taken care of. It's like the equivalent of saying, you focus on what I'm calling you to, and I'll protect your border. You know that in and it might even be in my morning session that I'm giving to you guys this morning too. But to the Jews, they had feasts where the men were called up to Jerusalem. And those feasts coincided with harvests. The worst time you could possibly go and leave your field would be when your fruit or your, your, your wheat or your barley is ripe. And yet, that's when God's calling you up to Jerusalem. And one of the things that God is going to assure the men of Israel is that if they go up to Jerusalem, he will protect their crop. Isn't that just an interesting base promise? It's like, no, you put me first, I'll take care of your crop. However, what is our instinct as farmers? To care for our crop, lest the Philistines come across knowing I am in Jerusalem and take my crop. I can't leave. I have a crop to tend to. Every single one of us has a crop we could tend to. The point is, are we going to give up everything to Jesus and entrust our crops to him? He knows how valuable that is. He knows we need money to live. However, are we going to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness? I am going to make my strength available to my king, and I'm not going to misuse it on a borderline where the enemy is trying to sponsor skirmishes constantly. Lord, here I am. Use me. Send me. The convincing of William. What does he say? He wants to get you to keep all you have for you. And yet what does the gospel hinge on? What we'll call the convincing of Jesus. To get you to give up all you have for him. So, in both world wars, America is going to be baited to keep all they have for themselves. And to be honest, it is a very reasonable argument that you could make. If, if you, if, well, we are going to go to America in World War I as we go through this series, and we'll get into the thinking of it, because it actually makes total sense. If you're Woodrow Wilson, you're going to say, why would I spend all my strength over in Europe? I'm trying to survive here. And in World War II, if you're in the middle of a Great Depression, you can imagine why Franklin Roosevelt's like, you know what, my people are really not in a strong position to be leaving their homes and leaving their families and traveling over uh, the Atlantic Ocean to fight in a battle that is not theirs. Sorry, uh, Winston. He's talking to Winston Churchill. They're good buddies. And yet you could understand it. As Americans, you, got, you could be thinking totally, and that's what they were. The American public was very much against involvement in World War I and in World War II. And yet, ironically, in both of those world wars, it's America's involvement that ends up turning the tables. So 
there is something true in that, even though I don't want to say, hey, it's great that America went off to war. That's not my end conclusion. It's just that we are called to a war. We have been given weapons of warfare that are mighty, and yet many of us are not utilizing them for the purposes of the king. We are not ready to go because of skirmishes on our border. And that's where I want God to touch us and to remind us that when we leave our fields to go to Jerusalem, he cares for those things. Father, I ask that you would reveal to us where the voice of William has meddled and where we have bought the lie. Lord, I pray that you would free us from these local skirmishes in our life and set our feet upon solid ground so that we could live fully for you, that we could function according to a higher purpose. Lord, you've called us to represent you in this world, to care for the weak, the lost, and the dying. Lord, but to do that, we need to have our hands set free from serving ourselves to serving you. So Lord, where we need that fresh encouragement today, where we need to be set free from our own ills, our own issues, our own weaknesses, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do precisely that. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.